Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC Drop Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the DLC Drop Podcast. It is my pleasure to introduce my friend, Mark Nasha. Mark is a lifetime game developer, having shipped over 50 different games, a serial entrepreneur who has started two game studios, the former deputy director of SMU Guildhall. He's a husband, and he's also a father of four folks. Please welcome Mark Nasha. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me. I'm super hyped that you're able to, to be on here with me. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, so we, you know, we've known each other, I want to say, what has it been? Probably three, four years now, probably closer to four. Yeah, we met probably three, four years ago when I was at SMU Guildhall and you were at GameStop and we were just looking what we could do together is how we started off originally. And it was great to meet you back then. And then we did OP Live together where you were a speaker, a power speaker. Yeah. And just a lot of commonalities that we had with your skateboarding and both of us coming from the West Coast. It was awesome. Yeah, it was actually OP Live was where I announced the Esports Trade Association. And that was like a, a, a great local partnership that we were able to do with Game with GameStop. And I remember that just opened my eyes a lot to like what collegiate esports could be. So that was like, that was super cool with local colleges. Yeah, it was. We were, and for people that don't know, OP Live was basically an esports event, but primarily a community building and educate parents on what esports was or is, why their kids are into it, that they're not just jonesing out in the basement playing games, that there's actually careers to it and a lot of opportunities. And that you spoke to that as well at OP Live. Yeah, and talk you talk about careers. Uh, one of the things that I was amazed when I found that SMU with the Guildhall had the, and this is according to the Princeton Review, not according to SMU, <laughs> but had the number one game development school in the world. And that, that blew me away when I found out that was right here in our backyard in Dallas. Yeah, I went there in 2012 and we were about six or seven on Princeton Review for anyone that puts value or credence into such a thing. But then we really got going around 14, 2014, 15 and into 16. We became the number one game development school actually in the world. Pretty proud of wow. that. Being a part That's of incredible. it was awesome. That's incredible. And it's, you know, a lot of people are, you know, I think it's coming to light more and more nowadays, but, you know, parents are looking at their kids and they're saying, okay, you're playing all these video games. What are you going to do? You know, that's any good for you. And I obviously with the, the esports pros, people understand, okay, like you can do a career or you can be a content creator, but that's, that's that 0.3%, just like traditional sports. Yeah. But I love what you guys did and it shows what you can do as a career for decades. Yeah, and I think from a gaming standpoint, everybody thinks like, oh, to get into sports, you have to be the top 1% of 1%. I'd argue in a lot of cases, it's actually harder than traditional sports to be a pro gamer. But that's a big misnomer where there is so much that goes into, esports is just part of gaming. As I always yeah. say, it's just part of that bigger ecosystem. And you can go in it from a content creator to organizing events to actually building games, which without the games, you never have esports. And there's just so much that goes into it, the marketing of it, the sales of it. If you're like great at like team leadership, you can even get into like the coaching side of gaming. There's just so much to it. Yeah, I love that. There's so much that you can you can do what you're passionate about or you can be surrounded what you're passionate about using your your skills like like for me i'm terrible at video games actually like my favorite game that i still play is street fighter 2 because it's the only one that i'm like semi decent at and i get man i get in any fps games and i'm just turning around in circles and getting shot in the head before i even know what's coming but like you know so me so you know i'm very involved in the sports industry being somebody who quite frankly sucks at video games and you know, a lot of other people can be involved in, you know, the, their strengths that are more likely to be able to generate revenue for themselves. Absolutely. And I, I grew up, I'm older, obviously, and grew up in the arcades. And that was its own competitive scene back then. But then once we got to consoles, was just passionate about the gaming side of it, but wasn't 
the greatest console gamer, just extremely passionate about gaming and the communities around it. Um, and I think that's what kind of bonds us all together, whether you're good at it or you're bad at it. I just think that common passion around gaming and connecting people in so many different ways now, you know, that there's so much opportunity there. And then where you find yourself in it and where your skills are. I'm not saying it's for everybody or it's a panacea, but I'm just saying there's a lot of opportunity for people. Yeah, no, that's perfectly put. So, I mean, you've obviously been in this industry for a very long time. I feel like the OGs of esports are like 10 years, five years. And I think it's safe to say you've had a little bit longer than that. Yeah. So tell me about, you know, how did this first form, this passion first form? And where when did you first see like, hey, I can work in this industry? Yeah, and I, it is a while ago. And I've been in for a very long time and changed over time with it, which is awesome. But starting in it, so my background was um, business and in, in electrical engineering. And gaming industry was just fledgling at the time. Didn't know I'd even get into it or even if it was a possibility. So it wasn't so much I was looking for it. So it found me, so to speak. And I was just given a great opportunity because my background was technical and management. And there was a local group next to us and they, they knew about my skill sets, which was awesome that they could find me, match my skill sets. And they basically gave me a shot. They gave me a chance. So it's very fortunate. And I won't say, you know, there was magic in it or strategy in it. It was just, I was very frustrated in what I was doing and not knowing where I was going. You know, I was very successful in a sense, but I wasn't fulfilled. And oh, interesting. once yeah. I got into gaming, it didn't feel like a job. I mean, it was literally someone just taking a chance on my skill set and making a match, which I'm not saying that's the way for everybody, but I was very lucky. I was very lucky. That's incredible. What, what was that skill set specifically? Um, so I think thinking outside of the box, working with others, working collaborative, collaboratively with multidisciplines, being able to ideate, and a lot of stuff I did in a totally different industry, someone was able to read me or read my skill sets in it, which oh, would have wow. had a lot to do with ideation, which is disparate things and connecting them into a yep. common thing. If that, <laughs> that sounds a little nebulous, but no, so I, I saw that, that too, in yeah. me. And then it was the game passions there for all of us. All of us are very passionate, whatever space we're in on the gaming. And so that was always there, but I'm more, it was more my personal skill sets, team building, ideation, like I said, design, being able to see things that aren't really there yet that you yeah. can create is awesome. But again, and it was just so, it was so lucky. And I just been very great. I'm super grateful uh, for it. Yeah. What age was that when you were able to get that opportunity? I was in late twenties is when I started. I already, like I said, I was in a different career, which actually was like, not to bore people, but fabrication and aluminum anodizing. And I was the geek in the lab trying to figure out new ways to anodize aluminum. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. I never knew that about you. Yeah. No, but just, I, I rarely bring that up, but it's just to give people an idea like that thing you do, if you're not really happy in it, but you have a skill set in it, go find, don't give up. Just it, try to find it, whatever that space is that makes you happy. That's a great point. And I think there's a lot of skill sets that they can apply to lots of different industries. I mean, I think one one of my favorite things about esports, it's not too dissimilar to traditional sports, but is that you have all of these roles to run, whether it's a team or a league. But then I think you also have the game development side of it and marketing, community manager, all of these different roles that need to be done that, you know, could be done in traditional sports, that could be done in other aspects of business and you just apply that skill set to the esports industry. And I, to that point, I think it's brilliant that people coming from those different spaces and worlds that maybe not even be traditional from a game developer standpoint or a game publisher standpoint, all that's really needed in esports specifically. So people that do like sponsorship sales to, you know, TOs, which is tournament organizing and all that, those, the people coming from that space and those backgrounds are from very different areas, but very much needed just to bring 
different perspective and different ideas together to make a better end product. I, I completely agree. And I, I think as well is, you know, there, we can use a lot more experience in our industry. I think that's a nice way to say it is that we, you know, one of the challenges of the esports industry in my mind is that it's young in two ways. It hasn't been a long, it hasn't been around a long time, but it also has young people running it. And that's so something. while there's benefits to young people running it, like, okay, you have new ideas, you're not stuck in, like, this is the way we've always done it because you haven't done anything before. <laughs> but when, what I look at all the time is how can we improve these business practices to enable gamers to enjoy more of what we love? Because if you're doing things more efficiently, you're going to be developing new monetization models. Partners are, are driving the most revenue in esports right now. And so if one of my biggest concerns are these non-endemic partners not receiving an ROI on their partnerships. Right. And so they're going to take that money, they're going to put it somewhere else. And that is literally the money that is fueling our favorite activities. And something as simple as just better business practices, managing a partnership, ma looking for the opportunities to maximize. That could be the difference between a league succeeding or not. Yeah, absolutely. And I, when you talk about there's a younger demographic in there, and then, you know, there is, there's experienced people regardless of age. And I think that's all needed on both sides. So I hate saying it that way, but as long as everybody's very open to different experience levels and also new blood coming into it that looks at things totally different. And that's what I really like about it. I mean, it's very reminisce, if you will, about, I guess I'm very accepting and understanding of that because that's very much how the game industry started in general was, you know, as fledgling, it was just starting, it was just starting to become a big business, if you will. But when big money came into it, a lot like is happening in esports, there was a, a real good, initially a bad rub, but then a really good rub where you had people that were very experienced in other fields. In this case, it was a toy industry back in the game, way back in the day. Um, sure. They were like, what do toy people know about video games? But it's the same kind of thing now within esports. And that's why I think it's so refreshing and so optimistic because I've already seen it in a space that's just blew up globally. And esports is doing the same thing. So it's very, I won't say repeating the past, but a lot of familiarity. There's a lot of similarities in that. Yeah, big time. So you talk about the going back to the toy industry. Uh, you've launched over 50 titles. What are what was your first one? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, it wasn't the most. We've all we've got all got skeletons in our closet. We were just <laughs> a bunch of newbies building yeah. stuff on console. And so my first one was. Uh, Dino, one of the first ones we did was Dinos for Hire, but a lot of people probably won't know that game as a Sega Genesis. But what I would say to it was all of us, we were all pretty young. Some of us teenagers on the team. We've yeah. all been tight since then throughout our careers in the industry. And we've all at some point taken care of one of, another, one of you know, of each other. And that's awesome. Whether the game was successful or not, we got it out the door. Probably my the earliest biggest success was Eternal Champions because fighting games were big. It was the first, you know, not by today's standards, numbers are much bigger, but we did sure. over a million units within, you know, the first month or two. And that, that was huge for us. I mean, it was the same team that did, you know, didn't know what the heck we were doing on Dinos for Hire. We put together Eternal Champions and we did something successful. All to be said, it was just learning and growing and learning and growing, which to this day is still very much a part of me. So when you bring it up, it just prompts a lot of things, not so much the game success or failure. It was just really learning by some failures and then sure. being able to turn that into success, which I think goes into a lot of different industries, that mentality. Yeah, I think something that really was a perspective shift in my mind that I realized not too long ago is when you try something you like I'm you know I launched my own company DLC now and like a, a, something that really encouraged me to do it was the fact that knowing if I tried even if it didn't work I would learn so much I would be in a different place than I would would have been if I hadn't tried it I, I will have met people gotten on the radar of people that I wouldn't have otherwise and I think that's a really interesting thing with failure it's, it's not a zero-sum game it's not ultimate failure it's not like you can't try again or you or you know you're just done and you don't get a second chance it's okay this didn't work 
but you've now experienced all these things in life that open your eyes to what you're going to do next that you wouldn't have done otherwise. Absolutely. And you don't want to set up for failure, but we, you know, especially in the game industry and a lot of like software industries in general, it's, it's a fail fast mentality because you want to learn what works and what doesn't work. And by the way, congrats on starting up the new gig. But again, you know, all that stuff that you bring from your experiences in the past, you know, help you, I think you can gain a lot of confidence in trying something new or trying something that may look a little scary. But I mean, for like serial entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs like you and myself, you know, we take risk and hopefully those risks are mitigated, but I think it's easier or you feel more confident going into it through those past experiences, whether they be successful or failures, you've learned from all that and bring it to, I know that sounds very obvious, but you just keep building upon those things almost in a building block methodology towards your career. Yeah, I I think how we define success is really interesting too, because when I've been watching all these videos, you know, now that I'm starting my company, I'm like, you know, watching Seth Godin and Gary Vaynerchuk and all these people trying to pick up any uh, advice I can find. And one of the things with Gary V that really opened my mind was he talks about doing something you enjoy regardless of like how many likes you're getting or how big the audience is. And that was a big perspective shift to me as well, because it was like, like, I try not to get too wrapped up in social media and like, oh, did this one get more likes than the last post and stuff like that. But if you redefine that as like, I enjoy doing this and my goal is to teach people my piece of content is now successful because I put it out and somebody learned something from it versus was I validated by likes sort of a thing. Yeah, I... Success is a very individual thing, and there's been lots of definitions. One that I really like is someone actually was a a very successful coach, and his version of success was, you know, basically knowing you did the best you could with the skill sets that you had and had peace of mind that you did that. And for me, that's a high bar because you can be you can have monetary success or you can have all these different likes or big followings. But if you don't have self-satisfaction in that, and I don't want to be preachy, but to me, that's been one of the best definitions of success I have. And there's lots of ones that come to mind. You know, a lot of people say success is what you do between failure to failure is success and how you handle it. So, again, it's just a very, you know, it sounds philosophical, but I think it is. It's very much an individual thing, what success means to you. For me personally, it's hard. Because I'm always looking to do new and better things and new and better things. And I'll probably be that way to the day I die. So success right. for me is like, maybe. <laughs> it's the carrot that you never catch, right? But that yeah. continues, that keeps you chasing it, I think. For sure. But I think having that hunger in itself is, and that drive is, could be success, right? Like, I never want to lose that edge or growing or meeting new people that challenge me, or maybe I challenge them, you know, that could be success, right? Whatever it is for you. So that's a good point. Do you, you shared a, a story with me before when we were talking about this, about um, a failure that you, I, I guess you could call it a failure, but it, it sounds like a funny one. It had to do with presenting a oh, product lineup. Yeah. So this was a while back and we were, I, I'm going to leave it a little anonymous. It's more about, I guess, a way to laugh at yourself, I guess. So you have to, yeah. <laughs> I had to present uh, very briefly. I had to present our whole product lineup. I was um, running a division for a larger company. And so I had to run all our product for this, you know, the coming year and years past that. So I was working, working, didn't realize that you know, I hadn't slept in probably three days and had worked on this thing tirelessly, endlessly, because I just wanted to be a home run. So fly up to the Bay Area and go into our publisher. And I got to about slide one. And that's the last thing I remember. Apparently, I face planted passed out. (laughs) (laughs) So So you literally fell. I literally fell. And someone tried to catch me and I luckily didn't hit a desk or a table. But I just remember looking up and then someone was picked up on because I had someone with me where it's a bunch of us, a team of us. I don't want to say it was all about me. They knew the whole pitch inside and out. 
And next thing I know, I looked up and they were doing the pitch and someone was taking me out and got me an IV or whatever it was. And didn't, didn't realize, Most didn't memorable pitch ever. So, so, you know, I was so embarrassed and so humiliated at the time. But now looking back, it's like, to me, it's hysterical. But I'm sure the people watching me fall face forward past out was not good. So. That's incredible. Do you, do you know what happened? Like, were your knees locked or something like that? I remember in marching band, they said, don't lock your knees. Yeah, I've heard so much on that now, and I think probably. But it, I'll say this, you know, there's a lot of life lessons in that. A, obviously, don't work, you know, so hard that you can't see straight, which is obvious. And then the other, there's lots of things that go into just going into it, fully prepared, fully rested. And I would say I was overconfident, young and naive, and so probably thought I was invincible. So anyways. <laughs> no, that's too funny. So did you, how did that impact your presenting after that? Were you a little scared or? No, I'm pretty comfortable in most, it, it being on edge and re- thinking back on that, never let that happen. So I prepare much differently, it, you know, even for this you know, don't want to come in or have a hard day of something and then not be at your best. So I think even to this day, it's probably that scar still resides heavily in my brain. But yeah, I first, the first one out the door after that, because I, you know, as a producer in production of game dev, you do a lot of presentations. It's right. What you do, whether it's status of your game or pitching a game, you're usually the face of it in a lot of cases, not all cases, but a lot of cases. So the first one out, yeah, I was like, just, don't fall. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a great way to define success. Don't fall on your face. Yeah, Check. Literally. Success. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's too funny. So that was that at the beginning of the, the game development career or were you kind of uh, in it at I'd that point? I'd say early to mid, early to mid. Yeah. Yeah. So were you, with game development, did you um, do that just for a solid amount of time or did you go in and out of it i was in it for a solid amount of time no i didn't go in and out of it i went in and out of maybe different roles and really to learn so i was i'm mainly a guy in a room part of a team either helping a team or leading a team to develop a game or you know leading studios at some point in my career and then i went on the publishing side really just to learn when i say publishing side where you're you know you're receiving the product you're distributing the product you're acquiring product. For me personally, I wanted to learn that before I started up a studio. So I wanted to know both the publishing side and the development side. And the development side, I felt I had my chops pretty good and then became a studio owner, was fortunate enough to do that for one of our studios went 10, 12 years, which was a really good run. And so I would say in it, And then going into different roles. I got out of it just for a little bit, but that was to do simulations for the military. I'm not a military guy, but we did an amazing simulation back in 2012. And that that really stretched me too. And I learned a lot from that. Mm -hmm. Work with amazing people. I think all our engineers got hired by Google (laughs) right after that project. Wow, there you go. Just brilliant. But we were all game devs. And then we were just applying what we knew to a different field. And I'd say in that way, it actually, I wouldn't say it was much away from game dev. It's just the application went into uh, military simulation. It was a 30 foot dome rear projected. It was so game tech. I actually ran wow in there and got to stand in the middle of wow. And that was probably one of the funnest things I did was one late night, just jumped on wow. And the wow was literally around me. (laughs) Not the application, but just wanted to see what it could do. So yeah, I would say mostly in game development. And then I was fortunate enough to, you know, very circuitously got involved in teaching, you know, and that, that had its own rewards and its own challenges. So that was awesome. Yeah. Talk us through that. How was that jump? What kind of initiated you going from development to teaching? Yeah, here's some overlap with you and I that you probably don't know that predates your, your relationship. So GameStop actually had approached me and they were going to do some digital distribution stuff on game. This is way back in yeah. like 2011, 12. And I had done digital distribution and was really into it, actually, especially on MMOs and early days trying to get uh, digital distribution of games. 
we started talking, long story short, GameStop wasn't sure what they were going to do on digital distribution. We all know how that kind of ended up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they didn't uh, really pursue that at all. (laughs) No, but I thought it was a brilliant idea, right? Way back where they could have been like Netflix for games, right? Or something, who knows? Yeah. Anyways, after that, they're like, no, we really like you, but they weren't, they said, that, hey, we know somebody up at Guildhall. And I didn't know what, I didn't even know what Guildhall was. And they said, can you do a guest lecture up there? It would be awesome to have you speak up there. And I was like, wow, never, I'm not a lecturer. I can talk, but I'm not a yeah. lecturer. And I went up there and just kind of did my thing about the game industry and, you know, how much it's meant to me and how much it's meant to my family and anyone around us that's been in it. And had a great time with it and was asked, Hey, what'd you think about teaching? And I was like, I'm not a teacher. At least I didn't think that at the time, but I realized I had been mentored and mentoring my whole latter half of my career, I would say. And so it was natural. And 2012, I took a full-time position teaching team game production, production design, and then started game lab up there. Started that as well. Game Lab did publishing for students. So basically turn what they were doing as students into real resume building, which I thought would have so much impact to get a job. So once we started publishing the games, everybody in the industry that I knew, I was like, would you consider that a, a ship game, not a student game? And they're like, absolutely. So we started putting oh, wow. games up on Steam. Some were getting you know hundreds of thousands of downloads. And then we did things like OP Live, uh, and had students help run that so they could put on their resume. I helped organize a weekend event with pro esports players, pro orgs, 16 universities. And we did things like that. We also did philanthropic endeavors there. So very proud um, of what we did there. Yeah, no, that's incredible. In fact, you were the one who introduced me to SMU. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm wrapping up my curriculum. <laughs> it is. <sighs> I don't want to put a negative ass. It, it's hard, man. <laughs> it's hard to write a curriculum. I, I'd say this, and I really mean this in all sincerity. You know, it's, we all take for granted, I guess, what we're naturally good at, um, whatever that is for anybody. But to teach that thing that you do well or can bestow, yeah. it's so hard and challenging, but it actually makes you better at what you do, On, in my opinion. You just, it's Absolutely. a really good growth opportunity. So it's, it's very symbiotic. I always say teaching or mentoring where you probably get more than you put into it just through the process of it. Yeah. I think they say when you teach something, it's like learning it a second time. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, it really makes you go, at least for me, it makes me go deep on why I do what I do, how I do what I do. And so you can put that in very succinct words, very concise words and very understandable take more complex concepts yeah make them easy to digest not trivial right and it's you know it's funny because i've spoken at a bunch of you know college classes and stuff but i remember we were first doing the interview about like hey do you really want me to do this they said you know speaking and teaching are two different things and it's been so interesting, like Bloom's taxonomy, which for people who listen to know what that is, it's this list of verbs that goes from lower level thinking to higher level thinking. And so as we're writing out, it's so interesting how much importance there is on the words that you use. So it's like deducing, you know, deduce the elements of a business development strategy versus, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I've been writing too much curriculum, but you know, the different verbs have different meanings as to the actions that the students will take, but also the level of learning, which is just blew me away. It's super interesting. Yeah, it is. And then, you know, I think there's a lot of things to break down. Teaching isn't sitting there and just one directional lecturing at people. It's very much a two-way street. And I think getting people just to reflect deeply on how they do things, but more importantly, why they do things and just get, if you can just start that prompting and then that back and forth iteration between, you know, mentor, instructor and students, you know, it's a lot of awesome things can come out of it. And I think curriculum or teaching or even the program at SMU, I think had more to do with feedback from the students, how to improve the program 
during teaching of it, you know, I think there's a lot to that rather than just administrators or teachers take or instructors taking on themselves on that curriculum. I think it's very much a two way street. It's very iterative, like not to make everything about game development, but game building games is very iterative. And then just taking that process, at least for me, it's really about the users, if you will, or the people that are consuming it, you know, how they feel about it and making that a successful place for them to be. That's kind of my succinct way of saying it. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, you talked about mentoring a little bit there, and I know you've, I think, received a lot of benefit from being mentored, and you enjoy mentoring as well. Share with our audience both sides of it, because I'm a big advocate for people mentoring. I'm, you know, I, I got a couple college guys that, you know, they keep me cool. I try to help them as much as I can, but what should a men- what should somebody look for, or how should they approach to be mentored, and then do the results? reverse of that with, you know, how to be a great mentor? No, that's a really good question. I think mentors in general are going to, usually if someone's your mentor, they have generally have no idea that they're your mentor. I'll say that from the get go. <laughs> uh, and I'll yeah. give some real concrete, hopefully examples. But in the game industry for us, we would, and I'd say at competitors, trust is one thing and trying to improve one another is at the core of it, right? In a very openness and a trustworthy to us. And I can't understate the trusting part that it's someone that you respect and you want to hear the good and the bad. And I, I do that all the time recently up to most current situation where if I'm doing something, I'll, I'll ask people not so much what was good. I want to know what's good about it, but where can I improve and what did you see outside of me? And they have the fortitude or strength to tell you to your face, you suck here. Like, and yeah. that's, I mean, that may not be for everybody, but if you're really trying to qualitatively punch up, those are the people you need around you. And then hopefully I'm doing that for others in a different way or a similar way. That's not answering your question directly, but I think that's got to be at the core of it. I've, I have someone that mentors me in different areas, not just for my career, but also personal life, financial life. And I have, I learned that from students, you know, that have been very successful in game industry where they've got a financial planner, you know, they've got a personal coach. They're calling me about some career advice and different things like that. And so I don't think you have one that's one size fits all, but one that, or two people you trust in different aspects of your life. And then you get to know what you like about that experience. And then I think it's very much a pay it forward that if people are coming to you looking for advice, that it's how did that mentor make you feel? In a lot of ways, I'll tell people the most important people in my life aren't the one. It's not the words. Actually, I remember it's how they made me feel. Supported, confident. Actually, I just goose chilled a bit. Yeah. You know, and that my whole life has felt like that from the people that have been most important or most instrumental in my life. And I, I don't know, hopefully others may say that about me. I hope they do, but that's mentoring. You know, I don't want to say mentoring one-on-one, but always like you're never at a place where I've learned it all and I don't need a mentor. Holy gosh, you're probably the stupidest person on earth. If you said something like that. Um, sure. I, I hope I have mentors till the day I die. I, I sincerely. That's a great perspective for, you know, people who are leaders and in a position similar to you that don't just look down to mentor other people, but look for people above you and your peers to mentor you as well. I, like I said, and I really mean this, I probably learned more from students where they thought I was the mentor where it total role reversed so many times. But I think if a lot of people will not grow if I'm at this level, they're at their level. There's no way I could learn. I think we can all learn from one another. So, yeah. I like the aspect too about beyond business because when I've thought about mentorship, I've thought about it almost purely through business. But the last few months I've been working with a personal coach and I was always super skeptical of coaching. And, you know, there's probably a lot of coaches out there who aren't legit. It, it, it's, it seems like the type of thing that could be snake oil. But I was very uh, fortunate through ESTA to be connected with this woman. And what's really interesting, what has probably helped me the most is she's help, helping me work on me, she, which results in improvement in my business career. Absolutely. Like 
One thing that I really struggle with and I've been able to learn how to mitigate it is self-sabotage. And it, it was just wild how, you know, if I had a big meeting or something, I, I wouldn't be able to get in the Zoom link, you know, in the meeting or like I literally showed up to the wrong Starbucks one time for a job interview. And it's like, dude, how does that happen? It's this subconscious thing that's holding you back. And so us working through that, and like, what are those layers? Like, John, you actually have a fear of success, you know, so you're holding yourself back from that or you're afraid to really try. You know, I, I used to struggle with giving it my all because deep inside it was like, if I don't really try and I fail, I didn't really try. But if I put it all out there and if I try my best, and I don't do it. I'm not good enough. Yeah. And that, I, yeah. The best coaches, you know, just parroting you, I think more get to the, the heart of who you are, but really how can you be the best? How can you be the best at whatever you're doing, whether that's being in a relationship in a career. And usually, you know, I don't want to speak for everybody, but you know, what you said resonates with me is we can be, we can be our own worst enemies. We can be our own biggest roadblocks for success or potentiality, you know, of anything really. And I, I think going deep on that stuff is super important. I, learning how to do something, in my opinion, is the easiest thing to do. It's very easy to learn how to do something, but uh -huh. really to be great at something or be the best at something, like you really got to get past yourself in a lot of ways. Like maybe it's just yeah. you and I feel like that, but I think that's very important that there is so much we're capable of doing, but fear gets in the way. I mean, I don't want to go like, you know, right now it's, you know, a pretty scary place, the world that we're in, but you got to stay within yourself and stay optimistic and be very yeah. positive that, you know, you were going to endure specifically through COVID right now or whatever the case may be. But yeah, I think it's a very individual thing, but you need, I think the thing, John, you're getting at too, is you need someone to help you through that. You can't isolate and do it right. on your own. There's just no way. And it's hard for us to see our own stuff yeah. for one. Yeah. The other thing, when you go back to more towards mentoring, what I've realized is never like you or me in the place of a mentor never discount how somebody might see you and the role, like the positive role or just the level of significance that somebody has in their eyes of you. And I, I remember, so Rob Dyrdek, he's a skateboarder. Yeah. Um, he, he has all these TV shows on MTV. And so I had the opportunity to work with him in a past role. And I met him at a skateboard com contest one time, Street League Skateboarding, which he founded. And there's all these little like Make-A-Wish kids or whatever. And they're running up to him and, you know, oh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And he was so purposeful to each one, looked him in the eye, said, hey, I'm Rob. And heard their name, repeated it back to him. And that resonated with me so much that this guy who's got more people going after him than he even wants took a moment to realize that the, it made these kids day. Like these kids are going to talk about that maybe for the rest of their lives, right? And so to, like, I, I, I think my perspective too is like anything you do is normal because it's your life. And yeah. so sometimes I can be like, ah, like this isn't a big deal or whatever. But somebody sees that they're impacted by it and give them that attention, I think is so powerful. It is. And, you know, I can speak a little bit to that on firsthand experience. I was fortunate enough to have a Make-A-Wish kid come to want to meet me, which I got to tell you is the most humbling thing. I can't describe in words wow. what that's like. But it made me realize, and I, I don't want to speak for Robert, and I, you know, that humbling thing you're talking about and giving them like, how much can I give to an individual that like this, I don't want to give up names, but in this specific situation, this person didn't have long to live. It was a very yeah. young individual. And I was like, I don't know what I can give to somebody like that in a day. And I spent the whole day with them and I walked them through how games were built and behind the wow. scenes and... I, yeah, you know, it's you amazing. can call it mentoring, you can call it whatever, but I'll tell you for me specifically, I think about that moment almost every day. I don't want to go to work or do the thing that I do and then realize oh, wow. how much impact that had 
on people, just the game you build, which like you're saying, this thing we do every day or you take for granted or you think is very average or mundane, yeah, maybe not so. It was profound in my life, profound. And it happened early in my career, thank goodness, and it humbled me and I was a pretty overly confident, egotistical person. And I'll, I'll tell you, that leveled me out quick. And I'm glad I learned that because I'd probably be, I don't know who I'd be today. <laughs> Man, I've been there too. Forever. I used to, yeah, I was, I didn't think I was overly confident or image focused in all this. And then hindsight's 2020, I look back at old pictures or whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, John, you, th- you thought you were hot stuff. And I think I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about humility because in, in in my experience, I think that's the most valuable thing that somebody can possess is, and I, I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but I think C.S. Lewis said this, he's a great author and theologian, and he said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, there is a very, there's something we said for servant leadership or giving leadership that I think yeah. has, I'm all about product and quality, but I think that's a big part of bringing out quality. Uh, and I know you're talking about something much deeper, but I think it goes hand in hand with doing something very well. Yeah. You know, I've worked with great designers and I've worked with you know, design, designers that wouldn't work well with anybody and thought they knew better. And I, you know, you learn very quickly that it's not about you. And I think once you get to that place, I think you can do tremendous things that may look like giant egos or giant success, but I think it's end of the day who you are in your character as you approach it. And I'm I'm not saying I'm great or perfect. I'm not saying that at all. I had to learn some extreme hard way, like knocked in the face failures to get me to like straighten up. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes that's how you you learn the best lessons are the hardest way. I know I typically find the hardest way to learn my, <laughs> my lessons. I'm like, man, one of these days, I'm going to I'm gonna pay attention, I'm going to take advice, and I'm going to listen to somebody telling me something so that I don't have to just, yeah, land on my face like you did during that presentation. <laughs> um, all these times, my goodness. I want to jump forward. We've been talking about your career but you're in a very interesting place in your career currently. And so I know that you have some really interesting insights into what's coming next in your industry. So what would you like to share with our audience to have an eye out for as much as you'd like to share? uh, What do you think is going to be next? Yeah, I think specifically in esports and even in gaming in general, I think there's a lot to be said for the virtual audience and augmented reality as it relates to even traditional sports. For people that are home, integrating them into a more participating role where it really becomes part of the dynamic of the experience of events, whether that's esports, even traditional sports, which may lag a little bit. But I think you'll see them coming in augmented reality ways. I'm not the biggest believer in VR yet, only because I think the technology is pretty limited and it breaks immersion. And I could talk a long time. Yeah, but I think I agree with you on that. Blending augmented reality into physical events, whether it be visual, audio, participation at home by just the fans may affect games someday. And that's going to yeah. be pretty cool. Now that's a little forward thinking and there's a lot to unpack there. But I think that's what excites me. And I think that's where it's headed. I've been, this isn't the best thing to say publicly, but I think esports as a event is very 1.0 because I think gamers are very, they can multitask. They're highly sophisticated users almost entirely, the bulk of them. Yeah. And I think there's a lot more that we can tap into to make that experience so much better. And it will I be agree. better. And I think you'll see it dipping its toes, like I said, in, in more of the video presentation, the audio presentation of it, and trying to then blend a uh, virtual audience with a physical audience. I mean, and we're going to see a lot more. And I'm not talking about cardboard cutouts at MLB. <laughs> <laughs> hey, although, what was it? I think it was the Denver Broncos, which is NFL, obviously. But they put the entire cast of South Park in the stands for one of their games. I was like, man, if I could get... Some of that type of creativity. I mean, I'm down for some cardboard cutouts. But I think you in giving the users more capability to actually impact the, and we've done that in games, obviously, where we give right. some user 
um, created content. I think doing more of that at the traditional sports and esports, I think is going to be awesome. It's just dipping its toes into it. Yeah, my personal belief as to why, I don't know if you want to say that esports events have stalled out from a production standpoint. That's probably an overstatement. But I would say is it's very easy to be, I don't know, to settle for what we have. And it's because it's come so far. And especially when it's the people who have brought this from land parties all the way to grand finals at the Barclays Center. And you see these crazy uh, events internationally and everything. And so we see, oh, big screen, big stage, lots of people, lights that do this, you know, and there's so it can go so much further. But I think it needs to because 2020 was supposed to be the year of franchised home game esports, right? In fact, Team Envy had, I think it was seven events planned, which is quite a few. But what I've always said is when you have Call of Duty World League come to your your town once every three years, everybody's going to go. But if you understand traditional sports and how they look at promoting games, they view it as a night of entertainment. And so every option for entertainment is a competitor to, let's say, a Dallas Mavericks basketball game, right? So they're not just competing with the Cowboys or the Rangers. They're also competing with the movie theater, staying home, Netflix, going out to a bar, something like that. And so they have to answer the the question, why is a basketball game the greatest choice of entertainment for a group, a couple, or an individual? And I think esports needs to answer that, but it also has the ability to answer it in such a way that and bring in a, a bigger audience and say, hey, even if you don't understand the game yet, even if you're, you're having a hard time following, holy crap, you have to see this because this is just something that you can't experience anywhere else. And I think there's that opportunity and it just needs the right people to bring that but to I, fruition. I think esports has a lot more flexibility where traditional sports is going to find itself on just the history of itself, right? And, you know, those... Yeah. That audience is aging out to some degree where, you know, you have a lot of younger demographic that are identifying in equal or more numbers with a caster or a pro player or a pro team. But I think you're able to experiment more. I mean, I think that audience is open to it a bit more. I don't want to badmouth traditional sports at all. I love traditional sports myself. But I think you can do a lot more. And then just the connectiveness between communities and bringing communities together through gaming, I think is going to be tapped hard. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. COVID's not the greatest thing, obviously, but it has definitely hyper-focused and maybe sped up the virtual side into the event side, which I think was coming regardless of COVID. It was already happening and we were already trying to do things there. This has just made it more punctuated, but I think it is the future definitely. But accessibility is something you got into, John. Like, you know, I think people can understand like a Rocket League more than a newbie coming into and trying to understand the intricacies of like a League of Legends or something like that, which there's huge fans on League of Legends. But I mean, if you're really trying to expand that base into a new community, you've got to look at easy accessibility to not just a understand the game, but easy accessibility to get into the community of if you're trying to grow communities. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think when you don't understand something, it's not interesting. And so I think when older people are like, you're watching, you spend all your day watching video games. It's like, because you don't understand the video game. Like, I, I compare it to what's super funny is uh, skateboarding is a great example of this is outside of skateboarding, non-skaters think that riding a half pipe and doing big air and stuff is most of what skateboarding is. In the, from the skate industry, it's like maybe 3%. Everybody's skating street. They're skating ledges. They're skating handrails. But nobody understands what's happening when they see a board flip really quick, land on a rail, and then flip again. But they understand big air, right? And so in the same way, that's yeah. that, you know, you have something like Rocket League or, or I think there's a lot that can be done in the education of games for parents and then also that opportunity you know for fathers and sons and daughters you know don't want to leave out the moms too but you know is to be able to do what your kid loves with them and that that can bridge a gap 
Yeah, I think naturally, though, it's, I mean, accelerating the process would be great. But I think naturally, the occurrence here is a lot of parents now that have younger kids are gamers themselves and understand it. So I think that, that demographic is is aging up rapidly. And so that community is going to grow. So yes, 100% on the education side, I think naturally, though, it's just going to, it's just going to happen by nature of the community aging, if you will. Yeah. But we still are very young in it, as far as a community. But I, I think there's ways and I agree with you, I, it'd be nice to have like, virtual sports bars, if you were for gaming, and people were on board, just like MMOs, you know, you always get into an MMO because someone helps you get into it. It would be sure. the same idea, same principles you would use here, where groups can group up, they can get into games that they want to watch, and they can bring in their friends that they want to be with that may or may not be into this, like, why are you watching this stuff constantly? And maybe right. they get interested, but I think it's the community also educating itself. And, ex- and I've seen it on online games. I've been part of huge online community games. Yeah. And a lot of people on board because of the accessibility, mainly of the game and understand it, but also because of community members growing the community as well. And I think there's things you can interject in esports to foster that, which haven't been done well yet. Right. I think we can agree there's a lot to look forward to. So as exciting as eSports has been up until this point, I think what's coming is going to be really exciting, not just for the eSports world, but for the world outside too. Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. And you and I could just geek out and talk about this for hours. But I think bottom line is there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of people is what you're leaning into. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. As we wrap this up, is there any any way you want people to follow you or any projects you want to plug or anything like that? Uh, I, they can follow me on LinkedIn right now, but I would say that shortly here, going to have a big announcement on my career and some things I'm going to be super, and I don't want to be vague about it. I just can't go public with it, but that'll be out sure. on, everybody will see it when it goes into LinkedIn, but different new challenges in my career. So super happy about that. That's awesome. Congratulations about that. I can't wait to hear about it. So just teasing. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Thank you, Mark Nasha, for joining us again. It's always great to talk to you. And it's it's just really a pleasure to have you join me and contribute your time to to support the podcast. My pleasure. Good luck on the new endeavor. It's always great talking to you. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right. That wraps it up for another episode of the DLC Drop podcast. It was a pleasure to have my friend Mark Nasha join us. Amazing to hear about his career from game development to the SMU Guild Hall. An exciting announcement coming soon. So really appreciate him having us. I think you'll enjoy the episode. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri podcast network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.